You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. point out one thing that Jim said last week that was very offensive to me. Since he's not here. This has been recorded though, right? Okay, good. Just this part. After that, turn it off. <laughs> he mentioned last week that he thought there may be three people here this Sunday. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Yeah, he did. Go back and listen. He did. What really bothers me the most is that I have three daughters and a wife. So I know one of them was telling him that they were going to try to get out of it today, but I'm not sure which. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for your word, and this morning I'm grateful for all the examples of the people that you've used, and the examples of Moses and Gideon and David and Paul and Peter and all these that you were able to use, even though they were not in any way fit vessels to be used by you. I pray, Lord, that that, uh, that would be in evidence today as well, that your word would, would be proclaimed accurately and rightly, and that we'd be blessed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe the Bible's true. That's probably a good thing this morning, since we're going to preach out of it. I think most of you would agree with that. But there's important implications of saying that you believe the Bible's true. And one thing is, the Bible has to be consistent with itself. So when I read a couple of passages that seem to be somehow contradictory, I know that there's some weakness in my understanding of one or both of the passages. And so it is for me when we look at the passages that we read this morning. Did you notice that? I read the, the story of the Philippian jailer. That's a great story. Philippian jailer, he, he comes rushing to Paul and Silas. He says, what must I do to be saved? Do they tell him? They give him the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. He responds positively. He's saved. In fact, his whole household uh, comes to faith in Christ. Great story. Then we have the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes asking essentially the same question, and he goes away sad and grieving. See the difference? Jesus doesn't share the gospel with the rich young ruler. And that bothered me. Those two things don't seem to match up. And if any one of them seems to be right, it seems to be what Paul and Silas did. Right when we first look at it. Now, I know that Jesus doesn't do anything wrong. I know that what he did was right, but I didn't at first know how it was right. It seemed to be a contradiction. So that's what we're going to try to figure out today. We're going to try to reconcile those. The important point that we're going to keep coming back to is what was it, what was lacking, what was wrong with the, in the conversation with the rich young ruler that led Jesus to not share the gospel with him? Why didn't Jesus share the gospel with him? All right, so let's go back to Acts 16 for a minute, and we'll go quickly through this passage, because again, there's really we don't have any issues with this one. Uh, Acts 16, most of the Iwana kids have memorized Acts uh, 16.31, which is the climax of the story. Uh, it's a well-known story. We went through it not too long ago, when Jim was in Acts, about five years ago, maybe, at this point. I'm sure you all still remember that. But as we had, Paul and Silas were beaten. They were thrown into prison for uh, ruining the livelihood of some who were profiting from the work of a demon in a slave girl. They were accused of creating chaos in Philippi and encouraging Romans to follow Jewish customs. So they're beaten, the Bible says, with many blows and thrown into prison. And look at verse 23. Here's the introduction to the jailer. 
It says, when they had struck them with many blows, they, were, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. So the jailer was at this trial. Okay, That's something important to, to remember and we'll come back to. And you kind of know the rest of the story. They were, uh, they were in prison. They were praying and singing hymns to God. When the an earthquake shook the doors, they were loosed. And we come to verse 20, verses 27 through 30. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that word saved is a very common word. It's the Greek word sozo. It's very common. It just means to be moved from a dangerous place into a safe place. It doesn't necessarily have the spiritual overtone. It does here, but it doesn't necessarily. It could be saved from any sort of danger. You would use this word if you were drowning or hanging from a building or something like that. Anytime you're in a dangerous place, you want to be moved to a safe place, to be rescued, to be delivered or saved. And some have held that, in fact, he wasn't asking for salvation in the way that we think of it. He was actually asking Paul and Silas, what do I have to do to be protected from getting punished from my superiors for what has happened here? Uh, they kind of take the spirituality out of it. Well, the jailer was subject to punishment if, in fact, the prisoners had escaped. So it would have been reasonable for him to say, to have that question in his mind. It's not really reasonable for him to ask it of prisoners, right? And also, at the time when he asked the question, he knows that the prisoners have not, in fact, escaped. So he's not subject to that punishment. It seems clear from what happens later. He's actually asking to be saved in the way that we think of being saved. Saved from sin, from the power of sin, and the penalty of sin, the judgment for sin. But that seemed kind of odd to me at first as well. Why would this jailer think that Paul and Silas knew how to be saved? Why would he think that he needed to be saved? There's no record here of anyone sharing anything with this Roman jailer, right? But what is it? Well, we got to back up just a little bit. Go back up to verse 17. It says, Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So this demon and the slave girl was going around. This is what she was saying, that these men, Paul and Silas, were proclaiming the way of salvation. We don't know if the jailer was there to hear that, but we know he was at the trial, so he would have heard the whole story. So he would have heard that there was this weird thing where this demon, or this slave girl with a demon, was, was saying that Paul and Silas knew the way of salvation. Also, verse 18, it says, She continued doing this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So the jailer would have heard that story too. There's something to this. There's some power here. Maybe these guys do know something. I don't know, but I'm still going to throw them into prison, which is what he did. Now in verse 25, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. The prisoners were listening to them. It seems likely also that the jailer was listening to them. It seems he fell asleep listening to them. So we don't know exactly what convicted this jailer, what convinced him of his sin, but we know there was something because he asked to be saved, right? A person doesn't ask to be saved unless they know that they need to be saved, unless they know that they're in some danger. So he understood that he was an object of wrath somehow through all this. Maybe other events, we don't, we don't really know. But what we do know is he asked, what must I do to be saved? And we know the answer he was given. This is the famous verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a very boiled down gospel, but for this jailer, it's a complete gospel. This jailer was in that position where he understood already his sin and the judgment for it. He wanted to know what he had to do to be saved. And they give him a complete answer with one short sentence. 
Remember, we're saved by grace alone. There's no works requirements placed on this jailer. By faith alone, he's just told to believe. In Christ alone, in the Lord Jesus. He's got all those elements in one little sentence. Because he was prepared to hear the gospel. He got the gospel. If it's perfectly with just about any Christian's view of the gospel and of evangelism. We have no problem with that passage. Okay. Now turn to Mark 10. We're going to go a lot slower, more slowly, through Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And we read that earlier. There's there's no big, real mystery in this story, this conversation. Mark 10, 17 through 22. It's not a parable. We don't have to interpret it in that sense. Uh, it's given to us in Mark. It's given to us in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. Very similar accounts, all three of them. No issues there. But you can see, I, I think, why it made me so uncomfortable. This is Jesus. This is the gospel personified. This guy's coming up to him and asking, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And he doesn't hear the gospel. Right? That bothered me. Right? Why doesn't Jesus share the gospel with this young man? Let's, let's dig in here and see exactly what's going on. Start with verse 17. It says, as he was setting out on a journey, we only hear about this journey here in Mark. The others don't tell us about that. And this was the journey that ultimately ended up in Jerusalem in the Passion Week. So Jesus is preparing for the last journey of his life. He's preparing to go into Jerusalem and suffer and die for the sins of all who put their faith in him. All right. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go through this story. It says a man comes up to him. A man ran up to him. All of you probably have headings in your Bibles, and they say something like rich young ruler, right? They probably all say that. Rich young man, rich young ruler. Uh, verse 17 just says he was a man. So first of all, how do we know that he was rich? Well, we got that from verse 22. You skip ahead. It says it, but at these words he was saddened. He went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. So we know he was a rich man. How do we know he was young? Well, it doesn't tell us that at all in Mark. Nothing in Mark about him being young. Some of you are flipping quickly over to Matthew, and that is where you find out that he was young. Matthew refers to him repeatedly as a young man. So we know that he was rich, young, and a man. Now, how do we know he was a ruler? Well, that's not given to us in Matthew or Mark, but it's given to us in Luke. Luke refers to him as a ruler. Uh, it's an interesting word that's used. The word is archon. It's, it means a ruler, a chief, or prince. It's used of Jairus. You remember Jairus, the synagogue ruler? Jairus' daughter. Uh, you remember Nicodemus. We've been looking at Nicodemus. He's referred to as a ruler of the Jews. Same word. The word's also used of Satan in John 12 and 14 as the prince of this world. It's used of Jesus in Revelation 1 as the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's a general word meaning ruler. So the question, one question is, what did he rule over? I don't know. Uh, what do we know about this guy that might lead us to some conclusions? We know that he knew a lot about the Old Testament law. He seemed to understand that. Uh, so that this, the nature of this conversation has led some to think that he was a synagogue ruler. He was some, in some sense a ruler of the Pharisees. We don't know that for sure, but he, we know that he was a ruler that was well-versed in Jewish customs, traditions, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, so I think of him as quite possibly being that. I think that's likely that he was a synagogue ruler, but it's not given to us clearly in scripture. So he's a thoughtful man, he's a successful man, he's devout, he's hardworking, he's religious, sincere, and he's deeply troubled. Look what he does in verse 17. It says, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him this question. He ran up before, to him, he ran up to him, knelt before him. 
he wasn't just coming up for a little bit of uh, intellectual discourse with this famous teacher that's walking around. He was really troubled. He had a real issue. Right? Something was really bothering him. So what, did, what was bothering him? Well, it says that he asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So I want to stop for a second so we all understand exactly what eternal life means in Scripture, uh, just so there's no confusion there. Because one of the questions that comes up is, well, maybe he wasn't asking for the right thing. He was asking for eternal life. In, in Scripture, eternal life is, does not just mean that we live forever. Right? You understand that? Everybody lives forever, in the sense of being conscious forever. Unbelievers have a consciousness in torment in hell forever. Believers have a consciousness in heaven forever. So eternal life is more than that. Eternal life is a type of life. It's a quality of life. The best definition of being alive is being able to respond to an outside stimulus, right? That's what it means to be alive. If you've ever encountered something that's dead, you can poke it with a stick and it doesn't do anything. Right? Being alive means you can respond to outside stimulus. Okay. Eternal life means you are able to respond to the things of God. You're alive to God. And that's what eternal life is, being alive to God. It's a, it's a type of life. It's a quality of life. We have joy in the things of God. We have, we're able to learn from the Word of God. We're able to appreciate the things of God and respond to them positively. John 17.3 describes eternal life or defines it. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ. Knowing Him in that, that intimate sort of way of having a relationship towards God, of having a settled peace towards God. When you think about the things of God, they bring you joy and happiness and peace. This is what this young ruler lacked. So what is he asking for? Is it that he's not, he doesn't know what he's asking for? Maybe. I mean, maybe he partially misunderstands what eternal life is. But understand what he's doing. This guy's a ruler. He's a rich guy. He's well thought of. He's coming up publicly to Jesus Christ and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's proclaiming a fact that he doesn't know whether or not he has eternal life. He's putting a lot on the line right there, isn't he? He's not just coming up asking some dumb question. It's a very sincere question. I don't think there's a lot in the question that we can criticize. He's coming up at least having some emotional conflict. When he thinks about his religion, his spirituality, whatever you want to call it, he's uncomfortable. There's something there that's lacking and he knows it. He knows from the scriptures that if he's a child of God, he ought to have that settled sort of assurance of peace with God. And he knows that he doesn't have it. Something's not right. And he's coming to find out what he needs to do. As we'll read through here, this guy's dotted all his I's, he's crossed all his T's, he's obeyed the law. As far as his religious philosophy goes, he's okay. He should be going to heaven. He should be content spiritually, but he's not. Because he's still guilty of his sin. So that's what he's coming for. Not necessarily eternal life, a full understanding of eternal life, but he wants to have that sort of settled peace with God. I think it's an okay question. So what about the legal legalistic aspect of it? Look how he asks the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Some have found reason to criticize him for that. Because uh, it's it sounds works-oriented, doesn't it? Well, of course it's works-oriented. The guy was a Jew at the time of Christ, well-versed in the traditions of the Jews and the laws. So of course he's works-oriented in his thinking. Virtually everybody that asks a question like this in the New Testament asks it this way. They're all works-oriented. Even the, the jailer, what did he ask? 
what must I do to be saved? Not uh, who should I put my faith in, or or, what must I do? He had some sense of having to do something. It's it's very works oriented. But look at uh, this is uh, I want to bring this in. This is from John chapter six. You can turn there if you want to. It's uh, verses twenty six through twenty nine. It's the bread of life discourse. Jesus answered them and said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal." Therefore they said to him, "What shall we do?" so that we may work the works of God? That's a pretty works-oriented question, isn't it? Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Calls them to faith. Right? Different answer to those people than to this guy, but both of them very works-oriented questions. So it isn't the fact that it's works-oriented that is the problem with the question. Right? As we'll see, the, the real problem is in a couple of attitudes of this guy's heart and mind. He's a self-righteous guy. That's really going to be the first problem. He thinks he's a good guy. He's very strongly Jewish in his idea of works righteousness. He has strong confidence in his own worthiness. So it's not the question itself that's inadequate. It's the attitude of this guy's heart, as we'll see. So nothing to criticize really in the question. Now look at verse 18. Here's the answer to the question. Here's where the puzzle really starts. Yes, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here's the answer, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Completely out of left field, isn't it? If someone comes up to you and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Hopefully you won't say, why do you call Jesus good? Nobody's good except God alone. (laughs) Where's the gospel? You know, I expect him to say, well, just repent of your sins and put your faith in me and you'll be saved. That's what I expected him to say. He didn't say that. Some have actually taken this, this is kind of a proof verse for those who would deny the deity of Christ. They use this verse. Um, it doesn't say anything like that. But if, if you look at it, it says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not good. Don't call me good, teacher. I'm not good. Only God is good. I'm not God, so don't call me good. It's almost like he's denying his goodness and he's denying his deity, right? No, nothing really like that in the verse. That's taken completely out of its direct context. What does Jesus say? Jesus asks a question of the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I think he's teaching him two really important points. He's starting to. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? You're you're proclaiming that I'm in fact God. You would be right about that if you really understood it. Do you understand that? I think that's the first point he's making. You come up here calling me good teacher, and yes, in fact, I am good, and I'm good because I'm God. Do you understand it? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm not just a good teacher. I think that's the first point. The second point, and remember, this is a self-righteous guy. He's, he's nailing his self-righteousness right at the beginning. Why do you call me good? Nobody's good except God alone, including you, rich young ruler. You are not good. Begins to plant that idea in this guy's head. Okay. Maybe I'm not that good. At least that would be the hope. Nothing wrong with calling Jesus good. Jesus is good. If you look, if you want to know what good is, you look to Jesus Christ. And He's also God. As we'll go through this, just understand, if you think you're good apart from Christ, apart from the work of Christ, if you sitting here think you are good, you are going to hell. 
And there's no hope for your salvation until you're divorced from the idea that you're good. Right? No person who's good in their own sight has ever gone to heaven, has ever been saved. Right? It's not possible. If we're going to be saved, we must understand we need a Savior. And you don't need a Savior if you're good. Right? Okay. So here's this guy, sincere, religious, honest, self-righteous. Jesus first confronts him with the notion of goodness. And then he defines for him goodness. What, what does it mean to be good enough to go to heaven? Look at verse 19. It says, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Right? You see what Jesus is doing? He's evangelizing this, this guy. He's giving him the law. Right? We've talked about this a lot. The law is what prepares the heart for the gospel. Um, we've, we've talked about this over and over, and Jim has done this a few times in here where he's actually gone through, hey, have, you know, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Looking into that reflection of the law, it shows God's holy standards, and it teaches us that we, in fact, do sin, that we're sinners. We see what God's righteous requirements are. We don't meet them, so we need a Savior. Right? That's what it teaches us. Uh, Romans 7.7 7 puts it clearly. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Did you understand that? Because the law says you shall not covet, Paul understood, oh, well, what I'm doing is coveting, and that coveting is, in fact, against the law, so I don't meet God's standards. I'm a sinner. It's the law that brings us to that, to that point. The law really is, and that's a really important point, whenever you're seeking out to share the gospel with somebody or to evangelize someone, uh, using the law is really important. That's the, the method of Scripture, uh, of evangelism. The law is used to contrast the light of the righteousness of God with the own damning blackness of our sin. That's the contrast. Uh, we, and we have to get to that point of understanding that. You may have heard this quote. If you've ever heard anybody talk about this topic before, Puritan preacher Samuel Bolton, this is his quote, It is the sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. The sharp needle of the law that makes way for the scarlet thread of the gospel. If you imagine you have a wound, it needs to be stitched up. That needle needs to go through to draw the thread. And it's the same way the law has to prepare the hearts of people for the gospel. Not so much with this guy. Look at verse 20. Young man's unfazed by his confrontation with the law. Look at verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And I imagine him responding very quickly. You know, Jesus lays out the law, honor your father and mother. Yeah, I, I'm covered on those. There's got to be something else. Go on. Okay. That's tragic, isn't it? Okay. Do you think it's a sincere response? I actually think it is. At the time that, the, that this was happening, it was possible to obey the law in an outward way. Paul called himself blameless according to the law. Paul knew that he had sinned, right? He was blameless according to the outward observance of the law. They had traditionalized this up in such a way and framed it in such a way that you could sort of outwardly follow the law and, and feel like you were okay. And that's exactly what this guy had done. Right? So I think it's a sincere response in, in this case. I don't think it's all that, I guess, an honest of response. You ever had this happen to you? People come up to you and somebody asks you a question. Right? And you give them the answer and immediately they disregard your answer. That's exactly what happened here. Like, I don't know, maybe if you're married, like often your spouse, especially as you start to get a little older, they'll say, hey, where were we when this and this and this happened? 
You go, oh yeah, that was when we went on vacation to this place, and it was, no, that's not it. Okay. So why did you ask the question, right? Not, my wife doesn't do that. I've heard other people do that. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. He comes up to Jesus. He runs up to Jesus. He kneels down. He calls him good teacher. He asks him a question. Jesus gives him an answer. And he says, no, that's not it. There's something else. That's not it. Because I got those covered. There's an opportunity here for introspection. This guy doesn't take it. His religious philosophy overwhelms this opportunity to speak with the Savior of the world, God in the flesh. And he just says, got it covered. If he would have allowed the law a chance to sink in. You know, if I really honored my mother and father all the time, Really, if he would give him even that chance for the law to sink in, to think about it, he would have had an opportunity to be saved. But he didn't. So where does the Lord take him from here? Look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. i got to do one little quick side note. It says that the Lord loved him. We don't teach that the Lord loves only believers or that the Lord loves only the elect. Okay? That's, that's a false doctrine. That's hyper-Calvinism, to believe that the Lord loves only believers or loves only the elect. It's very clear here, Jesus loves an unbeliever. We have no record of this young ruler ever coming to faith in Christ. It seems that, that Christ loved an unelect unbeliever. All right, so let's just put that aside and put that to rest. Now, again, look at what the Lord tells him. You only lack one thing. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. All you got to do is sell your stuff. That's all you got to do. Sell your stuff, give it to the poor, follow me. Okay. Jesus has finally, he, he, he could see this guy's heart and mind. This is something we can't do. So this isn't a, necessarily a perfect model for evangelism for us because we can't see into the minds and hearts of strangers and know exactly what it is that makes them tick and, and how we can how we can help him. But Jesus can. So he knew that this guy understood one thing about himself. He's not getting that he's he's disobeyed all these laws. But he does know that he's greedy. He knows he's greedy. So he says to him, okay, all you got to do is give away all your stuff. And and you can see it has exactly the desired effect. Now note that nowhere else in Scripture are we told that we have to sell all of our stuff and give it to the poor in order to be saved. This is specific for this rich young ruler. Uh, we could do a, maybe when Jim is absent again in 10 years, if Jess is having another surgery for some reason, um, <laughs> and you guys actually show up, we could do the thing on being rich, but, uh, really that, this, it doesn't really have anything to do with his, with being rich. You, you can be rich and be a, a wonderful Christian person. That's, that's not it. But for this guy, his riches were an obstacle to faith, weren't they? And so he gives him this. He says, okay, you don't understand all these other commandments. Understand this. Give all your stuff to the poor. And look at the response in verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened. He went away grieving for he's one who owned much property. So maybe Jesus broke through his self-righteousness. That was the first obstacle. That's the first reason Jesus didn't share the gospel with him is he wasn't prepared for it because he was self-righteous. He didn't know that he needed a Savior. That's the first Obstacle. It seems like he maybe broke it down here. I want to give you just a little example on that. If I said to you, hey Mel, I went down to the courthouse on Friday and I paid your fine. 500 bucks, I paid it. 
Mel, in all likelihood, I don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, he would go, what? I didn't owe any fine at the courthouse. I don't know what you did there, but it wasn't, wasn't on my behalf. There, there's nothing, there's, that's nothing. I don't know what you did, but you didn't do anything for me. Now, if in fact he did owe a fine at the courthouse, and I came up to him and said, hey, I paid your fine, that would be good news, wouldn't it? That would be gospel. That would be good news. You first have to understand that there's a debt to be paid before the payment of the debt is meaningful. And he didn't understand that there was a debt to be paid. He came sinless to the feet of Christ and didn't receive a Savior. But now maybe we've broken through that self-righteousness a little bit. And now there's another problem. It says he goes away sad, he goes away grieving. I don't know why he's so sad. He got his answer. He asked the question, he got his answer. I mean, this guy's love of money is a violation of several commandments. It's a violation of the first commandment, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This guy's unwilling to give any of his money to anybody. So it's pretty clear that he's in violation of several commandments. At this point, maybe he's beginning to understand that. But there's still something lacking. Jesus has presented him with a choice, hasn't he? You wanted eternal life, here it is. All you got to do is give up your wealth. That's all you got to do. Eternal life, all you got to do is give up your wealth. And he gives up eternal life. He holds on to his wealth. Makes a clear choice. The other attitude that this guy had, he was unwilling to submit to Christ, no matter what Christ asked of him. And that is a necessary attitude for salvation. Right? It's a necessary attitude. So this guy had two issues. One, he lacked awareness of his sinfulness. Lacking an awareness of sinfulness, he didn't understand his need for a Savior. And lacking that, the gospel was without any effect. He also lacked a total unreserved obedient submission to Christ that is essentially faith in Christ. Now, if you're detecting in that last point something called lordship salvation, it's because that's exactly what I'm teaching is lordship salvation. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching this rich young ruler. We come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord. You don't make him Lord of anything. Okay, understand that. You don't make him Lord of your life. People talk about how they made Jesus Lord of their life. No, you did not. Jesus was Lord of your life, whether you agreed with him or not, whether you knew it or not. Right? It's best that you agree with him, but he's Lord of your life either way. He is the Lord. If we come to Christ as Savior, we come to him as Lord because he is both of those things. So Lordship salvation is biblical. Right? But I hope now you can see why the response of Paul and Silas was so different than the response of Christ to the, to the ruler. The jailer came trembling, right? What must I do to be saved? He knew he was in danger. He knew he needed a savior. He was willing to do anything. Right? So he, he had those two attitudes. He was aware of his sin and he was ready to do anything for Christ. And so he's given the gospel and he responds positively to it. The rich young ruler came without any sin whatsoever to the feet of Christ, thinking that he had everything covered, but knowing that he didn't, but there was something wrong, but not knowing exactly what it was but not ready to admit his sin, didn't need a Savior, and he wasn't ready to give up his wealth for Christ. There were some things he would have done if Jesus would have said, hey, stand on your head and spin around. He might have done something, but he wasn't going to do that. Okay, so now what's the real point? Why would I do this passage? I could choose any passage in the Bible. I'm only doing a one-off lesson. You can do anything you want, right? And I've been teaching Ephesians now for Connor four years, Long, long time, 20 years. 
I have literally at least a hundred lessons in Ephesians that I could have modified and prepared. It would have been a lot easier. So why this one? I've become increasingly concerned about false converts in our congregation. People who are here today sitting in these chairs that are unsaved. That's a, it's a deep concern. And I think, it, I'm sure there are, there are unsaved people here today. People who may proclaim, have made some sort of statement of faith at some point. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe, maybe you come every Sunday, you come pretty much every Sunday. And you sing the songs and, and you kind of act right, you know, you sit at the right times and stand at the right times and uh, you listen to Jim's messages. You find the music to be uplifting and you find the messages to be challenging, as long as they're not too challenging. Maybe you even work a little bit in some of the ministries of the church or things like that. And yet you've never really understood the danger that you're in. You never really understood your sin and the consequences of it. Look, this rich young ruler didn't come to satisfy an offense that he knew he made against God. He didn't understand that. And so that's one of the things I want to make sure we all understand. Apart from Christ, you have offended the God of the universe. And you are bound for eternal torment in hell for that. And that's the righteous judgment. Understand that. Maybe you do understand that, but there's something that you'd be unwilling to give up. I've heard this before. People say, you know, well, I believe all that, but... I don't really want to commit to Christ because I don't want to give up this. I can't give up that. If I do that, this person, I can't be with this person. If there's something that you're unwilling to give up for Christ, okay. But just understand the price, the cost of that thing that you hold so dear. That's all I can, that's all I can do. Matthew 16. 24 through 27 says, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So if you've never repented of your sin and put your faith entirely unreservedly in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a choice today. This jailer went away, the Bible says, rejoicing with his whole household. And today, that jailer is rejoicing in heaven. But the rich young ruler went away sad, he went away grieving. And yesterday, and today, and tomorrow, and forever, he's serving his sentence in hell. Let's pray together. Father, we are just so very grateful for your word. We're grateful that it always comes together. That as we study it out, and we find things that we don't understand, that we are left with such a a greater understanding of, of all the things that we thought we knew before. We're grateful for it. And Father, I do pray with all my heart, I don't want to have any false converts in, in this hearing of my voice right now. And that's just a great fear that I have. I don't want people to feel confident in something they don't have. But Father, I pray for every soul that's here that you would work, as only you can, that you would work through your Holy Spirit to convict of sin, that they might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.